Section 20 of The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Tatiana Chichilla. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume 7, by Charles F. Horn, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Conquest of Timur the Tartar, A.D. 1370 to 1405, by Edward Gibbon, Part 1. Timur, better known as Tamerlane, Timur the Lame, was born in Central Asia, probably in the village of Sebzar, near Samarkand, in Transoxiana, Turkestan. He is supposed to have been descended from a follower of Genghis Khan, founder of the Mongol Empire, or, as some say, directly, by his mother's side, from Genghis himself. He is the Tamerlane, or the Tamburlane of Marlowe and other dramatists. Gibbon introduces him in The Decline and Fall, apparently because fascinated with the subject, although he gives a historical reason, the fact that Timur's triumph in Asia delayed the final fall of Constantinople, taken by the Turks in 1453. In early youth, the future ruler of so vast an empire was engaged in struggles for ascendancy with the petty chiefs of rival tribes. His boundless ambition early conceived the conquest and monarchy of the world. His wish was to live in the memory and esteem of future ages. He was born in a period of anarchy, when the crumbling kingdoms of the Asiatic dynasties were no longer able to resist the adventurous spirit determined to occupy the new field of military triumph which opened before him. At the age of twenty-five, Timur was hailed as the deliverer of his country. When he chose Samarkand as the capital of his dominion, he declared his purpose to make that dominion embrace the whole habitable earth, and at the height of his power he ruled from the Great Wall of China to the center of Russia on the north while his sovereignty extended to the Mediterranean and the Nile on the west, and on the east to the source of the Ganges. In his own person he united twenty-seven different sovereignties, and nine several dynasties of kings gave place to the unparalleled conqueror, who won by the sword a larger portion of the globe than Cyrus or Alexander, Caesar or Attila, Genghis Khan, Charlemagne, or Napoleon. It was believed in the family and empire of Timur that he himself composed the commentaries of his life, and the institutions of his government, which, however, were probably the work of his secretaries. These manuscripts have been of great service to historians in their study of Timur's career. At the age of 34, and in a general diet, Timur was invested with imperial command, but he affected to revere the house of Genghis. And while the emir, Timur reigned over Zagatai and the east, a nominal khan, served as a private officer in the armies of his servant. Without expatiating on the victories of 35 campaigns, Without describing the lines of march which he repeatedly traced over the continent of Asia, I shall briefly represent Timur's conquests in Persia, Tartary, and India, and from thence proceed to the more interesting narrative of his Ottoman war. No sooner had Timur reunited to the patrimony of Zagatai the dependent countries of Karizmi and Kandahar, than he turned his eyes toward the kingdoms of Iran or Persia. From the Oxus to the Tigris that extensive country was without a lawful sovereign. Peace and justice had been banished from the land above forty years, and the Mongol invader might seem to listen to the cries of an oppressed people. Their petty tyrants might have opposed him with confederate arms. They separately stood and successively fell, and the difference of their fate was only marked by the promptitude of submission or the obstinacy of resistance. Ibrahim, prince of Sherwan, or Albania, kissed the footstool of the imperial throne. His peace offerings of silks, horses, and jewels were composed, according to the Tartar fashion, each article of nine pieces, but a critical spectator observed that there were only eight slaves. I myself am the ninth, replied Ibrahim, who was prepared for the remark, 
and his flattery was rewarded by the smile of Timur. Shah Mansur, prince of Fars, or the proper Persia, was one of the least powerful but most dangerous of his enemies. In a battle under the walls of Shiraz, he broke, with three or four thousand soldiers, the cool, or main body, of thirty thousand horse, where the emperor fought in person. No more than fourteen or fifteen guards remained near the standard of Timur, he stood firm as a rock, and received on his helmet two weighty strokes of a scimitar. The Mongols rallied, the head of Mansur was thrown at his feet, and he declared his esteem of the valor of a foe by extirpating all the males of so intrepid a race. From Shiraz his troops advanced to the Persian Gulf, and the richness and weakness of Ormus were displayed in an annual tribute of six hundred thousand diners of gold. Baghdad was no longer the city of peace, the seat of the caliphs, but the noblest conquest of Kulagu could not be overlooked by his ambitious successor. The whole course of the Tigris and the Euphrates, from the mouth to the sources of those rivers, was reduced to his obedience. He entered Edessa, and the Turkomans of the black sheep were chastised for the sacrilegious pillage of a caravan of Mecca. In the mountains of Georgia, the native Christians still braved the law and the sword of Muhammad. By three expeditions he obtained the merit of the Ghazi, or holy war, and the prince of Tiflis became his proselyte and friend. A just retaliation might be urged for the invasion of Turkestan, or the eastern Tartary. The dignity of Timur could not endure the impurity of the Geats. He passed the Sihun, subdued the kingdom of Kashgar, and marched seven times into the heart of their country. His most distant camp was two months' journey to the northeast of Samarkand, and his emirs, who traversed the river Ertish, engraved in the forests of Siberia a rude memorial of their exploits. The conquest of Kipchak, or the western Tartary, was founded on the double motive of aiding the distressed and chastising the ungrateful. Takdamish, a fugitive prince, was entertained and protected in his court. The ambassadors of Oris Khan were dismissed with a haughty denial, and followed on the same day by the armies of Zagatai, and their success established Takdamish in the Mongol Empire of the North. But after a reign of ten years, the new Khan forgot the merits and the strength of his benefactor, the base usurper, as he deemed him, of the sacred rights of the House of Genghis. Through the gates of Derbent, he entered Persia at the head of 90,000 horse. With the innumerable forces of Kipchak, Bulgaria, Circassia, and Russia, he passed the Sihun, burned the palaces of Timur, and compelled him, amid the winter snows, to contend for Samarkand and his life. After a mild expostulation and a glorious victory, the emperor resolved on revenge, and by the east and the west of the Caspian and the Volga, he twice invaded Kipchak, with such mighty powers that thirteen miles were measured from his right to his left wing. In a march of five months they rarely beheld the footsteps of man, and their daily subsistence was often trusted to the fortune of the chase. At length the armies encountered each other, but the treachery of the standard-bearer, who, in the heat of action, reversed the imperial standard of Kipchak, determined the victory of the Zagatais and Takdamish. I speak the language of the institutions, gave the tribe of Tushi to the wind of desolation. He fled to the Christian duke of Lithuania, again returned to the banks of the Volga, and, after fifteen battles with a domestic rival, at last perished in the wilds of Siberia. The pursuit of a flying enemy carried Timur into the tributary provinces of Russia. A duke of the reigning family was made prisoner amid the ruins of his capital, and Yelets, by the pride and ignorance of the Orientals, might easily be confounded with the genuine metropolis of the nation. Moscow trembled at the approach of the Tartar. Ambition and prudence recalled him to the south, the desolate country was exhausted, and the Mongol soldiers were enriched with an immense spoil of precious furs, of linen of Antioch, and of ingots of gold and silver. On the banks of the Don, or Tanais, 
he received a humble deputation from the consuls and merchants of Egypt, Venice, Genoa, Catalonia, and Biscay, who occupied the commerce and city of Tana, or Azov, at the mouth of the river. They offered their gifts, admired his magnificence, and trusted his royal word. But the peaceful visit of an emir, who explored the state of the magazines and harbor, was speedily followed by the destructive presence of the Tartars. The city of Tana was reduced to ashes, the Muslims were pillaged and dismissed, and all the Christians who had not fled to their ships were condemned either to death or slavery. Revenge prompted him to burn the cities of Sarai and Astrakhan, the monuments of a rising civilization, and his vanity proclaimed that he had penetrated to the region of perpetual daylight, a strange phenomenon which authorized his Mohammedan doctors to dispense with the obligation of evening prayer. When Timur first proposed to his princes and emirs the invasion of India or Hindustan, he was answered by a murmur of discontent. The rivers, and the mountains and deserts, and the soldiers clad in armor, and the elephants, destroyers of men. But the displeasure of the emperor was more dreadful than all these terrors, and his superior reason was convinced that an enterprise of such tremendous aspect was safe and easy in its execution. He was informed by his spies of the weakness and anarchy of Hindustan, the Subahs of the provinces had erected the standard of rebellion, and the perpetual infancy of Sultan Mahmud was despised, even in the harem of Delhi. The Mongol army moved in three great divisions, and Timur observes with pleasure that the ninety-two squadrons of a thousand horse most fortunately correspond with the ninety-two names or epithets of the Prophet Muhammad. Between the Jihun and the Indus, they crossed one of the ridges of mountains which are styled by the Arabian geographers the stony girdles of the earth. The highland robbers were subdued or extirpated, but great numbers of men and horses perished in the snow. The emperor himself was let down a precipice on a portable scaffold, the ropes were 150 cubits in length, and before he could reach the bottom, this dangerous operation was five times repeated. Timur crossed the Indus at the ordinary passage of Adduk, and successively traversed, in the footsteps of Alexander, the Punjab, or five rivers that fall into the master stream. From Attic to Delhi, the high road measures no more than 600 miles, but the two conquerors deviated to the southeast, and the motive of Timur was to join his grandson, who had achieved by his command the conquest of Multan. On the eastern bank of the Hyphasis, on the edge of the desert, the Macedonian hero halted and wept. The Mongol entered the desert, reduced the fortress of Batnir, and stood in arms before the gates of Delhi, a great and flourishing city, which had subsisted three centuries under the dominion of the Mohammedan kings. The siege, more especially of the castle, might have been a work of time, but he tempted, by the appearance of weakness, the Sultan Mahmud and his wazir to descend into the plain with ten thousand cuirassiers, forty thousand of his foot guards, and one hundred and twenty elephants, whose tusks were said to have been armed with sharp and poisoned daggers. Against these monsters, or rather against the imagination of his troops, he condescended to use some extraordinary precautions of fire and a ditch of iron spikes, and a rampart of bucklers, but the event taught the Mongols to smile at their own fears, and as soon as these unwieldy animals were routed, the inferior species, the men of India, disappeared from the field. Timur made his triumphal entry into the capital of Hindustan, and admired, with a view to imitate, the architecture of the stately mosque, but the order or license of a general pillage and massacre polluted the festival of his victory. He resolved to purify his soldiers in the blood of the idolaters, or gentus, who still surpass, in the proportion of ten to one, the numbers of the Muslims. In this pious design he advanced one hundred miles to the northeast of Delhi, passed the Ganges, fought several battles by land and water, and penetrated to the famous rock of Kupele, the statue of the cow, that seems to discharge the mighty river, 
whose source is far distant among the mountains of Tibet. His return was along the skirts of the northern hills, nor could this rapid campaign of one year justify the strange foresight of his emirs, that their children in a warm climate would degenerate into a race of Hindus. It was on the banks of the Ganges that Timur was informed by his speedy messengers of the disturbances which had arisen on the confines of Georgia and Anatolia, of the revolt of the Christians, and the ambitious designs of the Sultan Bajazet. His vigor of mind and body was not impaired by sixty-three years and innumerable fatigues, and, after enjoying some tranquil months in the palace of Samarkand, he proclaimed a new expedition of seven years into the western countries of Asia. To the soldiers who had served in the Indian War, he granted the choice of remaining at home or following their prince, but the troops of all the provinces and kingdoms of Persia were commanded to assemble at Ispahan and await the arrival of the imperial standard. It was first directed against the Christians of Georgia, who were strong only in their rocks, their castles, and the winter season. But these obstacles were overcome by the zeal and perseverance of Timur. The rebels submitted to the tribute or the Koran, and if both religions boasted of their martyrs, that name is more justly due to the Christian prisoners, who were offered the choice of abjuration or death. On his descent from the hills, the emperor gave audience to the first ambassadors of Bajazet, and opened the hostile correspondence of complaints and menaces, which fermented two years before the final explosion. Between two jealous and haughty neighbors, the motives of quarrel will seldom be wanting. The Mongol and Ottoman conquests now touched each other in the neighborhood of Erzurum and the Euphrates, nor had the doubtful limit been ascertained by time and treaty. Each of these ambitious monarchs might accuse his rival of violating his territory, of threatening his vassals and protecting his rebels, and, by the name of rebels, each understood the fugitive princes, whose kingdoms he had usurped and whose life or liberty he implacably pursued. In their victorious career, Timur was impatient of an equal, and Bajazet was ignorant of a superior. In his first expedition, Timur was satisfied with the siege and destruction of Sebast, a strong city on the borders of Anatolia. He then turned aside to the invasion of Syria and Egypt, where the military republic of the Mamelukes still reigned. The Syrian emirs were assembled at Aleppo to repel the invasion. They confided in the fame and discipline of the Mamelukes, in the temper of their swords and lances of the purest steel of Damascus, in the strength of their walled cities, and in the populousness of sixty thousand villages, and instead of sustaining a siege, they threw open their gates and arrayed their forces in the plain. But these forces were not cemented by virtue and union, and some powerful emirs had been seduced to desert or betray their more loyal companions. Timur's front was covered with a line of Indian elephants, whose turrets were filled with archers and Greek fire. The rapid evolutions of his cavalry completed the dismay and disorder. The Syrian crowds fell back on each other. Many thousands were stifled or slaughtered in the entrance of the great street. The Mongols entered with the fugitives, and after a short defense, the impregnable citadel of Aleppo was surrendered by cowardice or treachery. Among the suppliants and captives, Timur distinguished the doctors of the law, whom he invited to the dangerous honor of a personal conference. The Mongol prince was a zealous Mussulman, but his Persian schools had taught him to revere the memory of Ali and Hassan, and he had imbibed a deep prejudice against the Syrians as the enemies of the son and daughter of the Apostle of God. To these doctors he proposed a captious question, which the Kesuists of Samarkand and Herat were incapable of resolving. Who are the true martyrs, of those who are slain on my side or on that of my enemies? but he was silenced or satisfied by the dexterity of one of the caddies of Aleppo, who replied, in the words of Mohammed himself, that the motive, not the ensign, constitutes the martyr, and that the Muslims of either party who fight only for the glory of God may deserve that sacred appellation. 
the true succession of the caliphs was a controversy of still more delicate nature and the frankness of a doctor too honest for his situation provoked the emperor to exclaim ye are as false as those of damascus Muawiyah was a usurper yazid a tyrant and ali alone is the lawful successor of the prophet a prudent explanation restored his tranquillity and he passed to a more familiar topic of conversation what is your age said he to the cadi fifty years it would be the age of my eldest son you see me here continued timur a poor lame decrepit mortal yet by my arms has the almighty been pleased to subdue the kingdoms of iran Tehran, and the indies i am not a man of blood and god is my witness that in all my wars i have never been the aggressor and that my enemies have always been the authors of their own calamity during this peaceful conversation the streets of aleppo streamed with blood and re-echoed with the cries of mother and children with the shrieks of violated virgins the rich plunder that was abandoned to his soldiers might stimulate their avarice but their cruelty was enforced by the peremptory command of producing an adequate number of heads which according to his custom were curiously piled in columns and pyramids the mongols celebrated the feast of victory while the surviving moslems passed the night in tears and in chains i shall not dwell on the march of the destroyer from aleppo to damascus where he was rudely encountered and almost overthrown by the armies of egypt a retrograde motion was imputed to his distress and despair one of his nephews deserted to the enemy and syria rejoiced in the tale of his defeat when the sultan was driven by the revolt of the mamelukes to escape with the precipitation and shame to his palace of cairo abandoned by their prince the inhabitants of damascus still defended their walls and Timur consented to raise the siege if they would adorn his retreat with a gift or ransom, each article of nine pieces. But no sooner had he introduced himself into the city, under color of truce, than he perfidiously violated the treaty, imposed a contribution of ten millions of gold, and animated his troops to chastise the posterity of those Syrians who had executed or approved the murder of the grandson of Mohammed. After a period of seven centuries, Damascus was reduced to ashes, because a Tartar was removed by religious zeal to avenge the blood of an Arab. The losses and the fatigues of the campaign obliged Timur to renounce the conquest of Palestine and Egypt, but in his return to the Euphrates he delivered Aleppo to the flames, and justified his pious motive by the pardon and reward of two thousand sectaries of Ali, who were desirous to visit the tomb of his son. I have expatiated on the personal anecdotes which mark the character of the Mongol hero, but I shall briefly mention that he erected, on the ruins of Baghdad, a pyramid of ninety thousand heads, again visited Georgia, encamped on the banks of the Araxes, and proclaimed his resolution of marching against the Ottoman emperor. Conscious of the importance of the war, he collected his forces from every province. Eight hundred thousand men were enrolled on his military list, but the splendid commands of five and ten thousand horse may be rather expressive of the rank and pension of the chiefs than of the genuine number of effective soldiers. In the pillage of Syria, the Mongols had acquired immense riches, but the delivery of their pay and arrears for seven years more firmly attached them to the imperial standard. During this diversion of the Mongol arms, Bajazet had two years to collect his forces for a more serious encounter. They consisted of four hundred thousand horse and foot whose merit and fidelity were of an unequal complexion. We may discriminate the Janissaries, who have been gradually raised to an establishment of forty thousand men, a national cavalry, the Spahis of modern times, twenty thousand cuirassiers of Europe, clad in black and impenetrable armor, the troops of Anatolia, whose princes had taken refuge in the camp of Timur, and a colony of Tartars, whom he had driven from Kipchak, and to whom Bajazet had assigned a settlement in the plains of Adrianople. The fearless confidence of the sultan urged him to meet his antagonist, 
and, as if he had chosen that spot for revenge, he displayed his banner near the ruins of the unfortunate Sebast. End of section 20